Would you please open up your Bibles to uh, Luke, Luke chapter 10, from verse 38, and I'm going to work my way through to chapter 11 and verse 3. And as we're talking about prayer this morning, let me pray again as we begin. Father, I ask you to, uh, to help me proclaim your word, that you would give me the words and the clarity of thought and speech, but not for the sake of speaking, but for the sake of leading your people to a closer, more intimate relationship with you in prayer. Please, would you by your spirit awaken the soul, awaken the heart, awaken the affections, the desires of our heart to come to you and call on you as Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody recognize that photo and who that is? If you think you know who it is, raise your hand and tell me who you think it is. Audrey? Rip Van Winkle. Yes, very good. Anybody, anybody else heard of, of Rip Van Winkle? You've heard of him? All right, so as the story goes, Rip Van Winkle uh, is a farmer who uh, wanders off into the Catskill Mountains, and he meets a bunch of dwarfs that uh, are playing ninepin. Rip is offered a, a drink of liquor, and he promptly falls into a great sleep. And he wakens up 20 years later. And he's an old man with a gray beard. And he's woken up to a whole new world. If you had a sip of liquor on the 1st of January 2020, and you woke up this morning on the 21st of November 2021, like Rib, you wouldn't recognize the world that you're in, would you? You would have woken up to a whole new world of travel restrictions, lockdowns, face masks, vaccine mandates, border closures, and the rest. You would have woken up to a world where the world is now fighting something called COVID with various weapons. And then we've got the war on climate change, haven't we? The world is going to extraordinary lengths to save our planet from extinction. And here's how some activists are fighting the war on climate change. Can you see that? A bunch of cli a climate change activists took a, bunch, a whole lot of horse manure and landed it in front of Simon Birmingham's office, who is a senator. A, a senator. And uh, I, I love Simon Birmingham's little tweet afterwards. He said, I hate to see unnecessary waste. Any eager western suburbs gardeners are most welcome to come and help themselves to some spring fertilizer. Classic. Then there's also the world on terror, isn't there? And... The weapons that the world use is a little bit scary. 
I was watching uh, 60 Minutes last Sunday night, and various experts were being interviewed and telling us how there is an imminent possible war, Cold War, nuclear war with China, and China allegedly making all sorts of threats. And Australia and the world are fighting terror <coughs> with bombs and guns and broken submarine contracts. Then there's also the world on moral, the war on moral erosion. Now, not all moralism has gone out of the window in Australia, but a lot of it has. And a lot of the moral, the moral fiber of Australia and the world has all but been washed away where so much of what God said is good is now called evil, and what God calls evil is now considered good. And then there is also this war on religious liberty, slowly but surely ebbing away with a particular attack coming on Christianity. And if you've been following the news in places like Victoria, uh, you'll know what's going on. Here's, a, here's an article out of the... Um, that's, uh, That's not Simon Birmingham. But um, let me quote to you from the Canberra Times. This is what it said. In an extraordinary act of authoritarian overreach, the Victorian government is intent upon regulating private prayer by monitoring who prays for whom, with whom, and to whom about issues concerning sexual orientation or gender identity. And this has implications for those who pray outside Victoria too. And it goes on to say, this sends an unequivocal warning to ministers of religion, religious counselors, and all faith-based organizations. Teaching or giving advice about sexual ethics based on religious doctrine could lead to hefty fines and even jail terms. In quote, Canberra Times. And there are many, there are many Christians as well that would choose to fight this war and wars with petitions, lobbying, political activation, and all the rest. But I wonder if you know this morning that Christians have been given some weapons. And I wonder if you know this morning that God has not left us defenseless against the forces of evil in this world. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, Christians have weapons, but they are not the world's weapons. And we don't wield our weapons like the world wields their weapons. Our weapons are so powerful. They're so powerful, they can bring down demonic strongholds. Do you know what the weapons are? Do you know how powerful they are? Both of our weapons are in our passage. If you've got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. And we're going to start with first things first in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And you'll know the well-known little story of Mary and Martha, don't you? And it's very often that Christians, when they talk amongst themselves, they might ask you, are you a Mary or a Martha? Let's do it quickly. How many, uh, how many Marys out there? 
if you know what I'm talking about. No Marys. How many Marthas? Oh, there's a lot more Marthas. Catherine's a Martha. I'm going to keep that one in mind. Okay. Well, have a look. Look at your Bible, verse 38. Jesus and his disciples are visiting the home of Mary and Martha, two sisters, and you know that Lazarus was their brother. And Martha is, is buzzing around. She's cooking up a Jewish storm for 12 hungry men and lots of lady disciples as well. And would you believe that according to Martha, Mary is sitting on her lazy butt listening to Jesus? She says, Jesus, Jesus, tell her to help me. Anybody have that sort of conversation at home from time to time? And look at verse 41. Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are upset and you are worried by many things. But only one thing is needed. Now, if you look at the passage... And you said, what is the one thing that is needed? What would you say that it is? It's pretty clear that it, 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 Jesus is saying, the one thing that is needed, Martha, is stop fretting. Stop worrying about all the things that are going on in and around. And listen to my voice. Listen to my word. But if you look at the passage carefully, the one thing is actually two things. Can you see that? It's not one thing. It's two. The one is two. Because have a look at verse 42 that leads into chapter 11, verse 1. But few things are needed, or indeed only one, depending on the translation. Mary has chosen what is better. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to his voice, and it will not be taken from her. Take the gap out of the NIV. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Do you see it? Do you see it? The one is actually two. It is to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his voice and to and to, to pray. Are you a Mary or a Martha? The question I want to ask you this morning is, are you taking it all to the Father in prayer? So what happens in chapter 11, verse 1? The disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Teach us to, to pray, Lord. We need to learn how to pray. Sometimes we think we know how to pray. And we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we find we don't even know what to say when we come to prayer. And isn't it wonderful in chapter 11, verse 1, that the disciples go to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me to pray. Oh, that an attitude of that would be in us. Jesus, teach me to pray. We need to learn to pray. Just as young children growing up need to learn to speak, so we need to learn to speak as God's children to our Heavenly Father. So look at verse 1. The disciples have clearly watched Jesus pray. And one of the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. But at one level, this is a rather curious request. I mean, surely the disciples knew 
how to pray. Surely they were prayers. Surely they knew the prayers of the Psalms. They heard the Pharisees pray all of the time. I mean, when Jesus said that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, I think Nathanael was probably praying. There are two reasons why the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, don't turn back there because you'll probably lose your place. But let me show you the first reason why they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Is actually we go to the extended version back in Matthew chapter 6. And you'll know Matthew chapter 6, we prayed it a bit earlier. Jesus says this then is how you should pray. Verse 9, our Father in heaven. But if you've got your Bible there, but I'll show it to you on the screen. If you look at the context, which was the verse before, you'll notice what Jesus says. Before he says, when you pray, pray like this. He says, do not, be, do not be like them. Do not pray like the Pharisees because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, Jesus says to His disciples, do not pray like the hypocrites. Because the hypocrites like to pray in order to be seen by men, verse 5. And they pray like babblers thinking that God needs prayer on repeat mode. So the first reason why the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray is because when they watched Jesus, he prayed in a selfless, non-hypocritical way. Oh, the Jewish Pharisees, they prayed. They prayed wherever they were. But their prayers were full of hypocrisy, pride, selfishness, and vain babble. I wonder what your prayers look like. Are your prayers full of psycho babble? Or are your prayers an expression of selfless humility? So Lord, teach us to pray. And what is the first thing that Jesus teaches them to pray? When you pray, say, Father, when you pray, say, Father. This gives us the second reason why the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Because what they saw in front of them when Jesus prayed, there was a personal intimacy with the Father. When the disciples saw Jesus pray, they, I think they would have been filled with an unsettled joy. This is just not the way the Jews spoke about God. You know, the Jews in the first century, they were even scared to use the name of God. They wouldn't pronounce it because they were so scared of pronouncing it wrong. Otherwise, they might blaspheme. And yet, when Jesus refers to his Father in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus refers to God as Father 65 times in the Gospel of John, over 100 times. When you pray, pray, Father. The gospel has brought us into an intimate 
fellowship with God as Father. You go back into the Old Testament and over and over, there was always this separation between God and His people. God was always showing that He was holy and, and, and man is sinful and, 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 and a sinful man could just not wander into the presence of God. And you might remember it was symbolized by the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And that curtain was there and no one was allowed in there. In fact, only one person once a year, the high priest, and he could only go in there with the blood of animals. You go a little further into the Gospel of Luke, and this is what you read. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last you see that link between verse 45 and 46? As the curtain was torn in two, what did Jesus do? He cried out, Father. Do you see it? As the curtain comes down, Jesus cries, Father. Because now, because now through the gospel, now through the cross, we can go again and again and again and again into the presence of God. Of the Father. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews put it. He said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place, which we couldn't before, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings, having had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And as you look at Hebrews chapter 10 there, it actually says that, that, that the curtain is, is, the, is the body of Christ. In other words, it's, a, it's, it's, it's through the body of Christ. It's through the death of Jesus that we can now go into the presence of the Father always, all times. Absolutely assured, with full confidence that we have been cleansed, we've been washed, we've been made righteous by our high priest. I'm trying to find a picture or an illustration of something that sort of describes this intimacy between, between the children and the father in terms of prayer and Suddenly struck me that in Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, you've, you've actually got a, a little picture of, 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 of prayer. It's not the main thrust of the story, but, but you, you remember the story, don't you, of the prodigal son? And the prodigal son wanted his inheritance, and he goes off into a far land, and he wastes all in his inheritance, and he has a wild spending spree. And, and we know what happens, don't we? He goes back to... His father, and we pick up the story in Luke 15 20. And having come to his senses, it says he went back to his father. But while he was still a long, long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There's a little 
picture of intimate prayer. It's the Father and the children way together. Father and children together. I guess saying or singing, take it all to the Father in prayer, probably sounds like the most cliched thing in all the world. But that's what Jesus did again and again and again. Are you, are you taking it to the Father in prayer before you do anything else? Are you taking it to the Father in prayer before you do anything else? Have a look at these wonderful words in Psalm 116. I love the Lord for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because He turned His ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. You know, the father hears every cry of his children. He sees every tear. He turns his ear to every prayer of his children, always, all times. I don't know if you've heard of something called a midrash. Okay? That's not a physical thing, by the way. A midrash is a, a Jewish commentary on Old Testament Bible texts. And in this one particular midrash, there's a particular rabbi. And this is what this rabbi wrote about God hearing the prayers of his people. He said, quote, A human king can, a bit of old language, right? A human king can hearken to two or three people at once, but he cannot hearken to more. God is not so. For all men may pray to him, and he hearkens to them all simultaneously. Men's ears become satisfied, and men's ears can only hear a little. But God's ears are never satisfied. He is never wearied by men's prayers. End quote. Are you, are you taking all your burdens to the Father, because He cares for you? Are, you. are you taking everything on your heart? Are you casting it on to your Father for He cares for you? That fear, that uncertainty, that insecurity, that battle with your sin, that battle with your will, are you taking that sin against you to your Father in prayer? Are you, are you taking that betrayal? Are you taking that broken relationship? Are you taking that loss? Are you taking that death? Are you taking that confusion? Are you taking that I don't know what to do? Are you taking those broken promises? Are you taking those unmet needs? Are you taking that misrepresentation? Are you taking that justice? Are you taking... Are you taking that injustice? Are you taking it all to the Lord in prayer? Paul put it like this. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the promise is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus. Do you think that if the father heard the cries of his son Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and throughout his life, do you think the father hears your cries? Do you think so? Take a look at this. One of the most extraordinary verses in all of Scripture. In Hebrews 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, not just in Gethsemane, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And if you look at that verse, what was the attitude? What was the heart posture of Jesus as he came to the Father? He came with reverent submission. So when you pray, Father, hallowed be your name. You see, if you're going to come to the Father with a reverent submission, you come with a hard posture that is to hallow his name to honor His name. And to hallow or honor the name of the Father is to honor all that the Father is. Just take, take a look at this in, uh, in Psalm 9.10. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You see, if you're going to know the name of the Lord, it means to know who the Lord is. And when you know who the Lord is then you trust Him. I, uh, I asked my mum why she called me Paul. Anybody know what the name Paul means? Do you know your Greek? Hmm? Little. I wish it was. It doesn't mean that. It means little. It means little. It means small. I, I, do you know, when I was looking at some photos, I actually wasn't that small though. I was a chubby little, chubby little thing. Um, I was tempted to show you a photo, but we won't go there. Uh, but but um, I had this cute little red thing that I used to wear. Never mind. Moving on. You know that my mom said that she called me the name Paul because she just liked the name. It had zero to do with character. Zero to do with what sort of baby I was going to be, what sort of child I was going to be, what sort of future I would have. But to know the name of God is to know his character, his nature, his attributes, his personality. His name is Father. <clears throat> and to hallow the Father as Jesus did is to honor, exalt, and glorify the Father for all that he is. And you realize when you come to the Father, you come to a Father who has saved us to be His children through His Son. And we come to a Father who has all the resources, all the power, <coughs> all the authority, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the compassion, all the tenderness, all the discipline to love and care for His children. 
So when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. It's may your person, may your character, may your nature, may your attributes, may your reputation be honored in my life and this world. I don't know if you've realized this, but every single human being at one level lives in the presence of the Father. Do you understand that? Because God is everywhere and He's all-seeing and all-knowing. We, we, at one level, we all live before the, before the eye of the Father. But as Christians, it's like we've got a special presence. It's like we've, we, we've, we've got a special presence in the, in, 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 in the sense that when when we, when we talk to the Father, it's, it's personal and it's intimate. And we're saying, Father, I come into your presence with one goal in mind, to acknowledge you as my Father for all that you are. You're righteous, you're good, you're perfect, you're tender, you're compassionate, you're loving, you're welcoming, you're hearing, you're all-knowing, you're all-seeing. You're the maker of my first birth and you're the maker of my second birth in Jesus Christ. You see, in other words, to hallow the name of the Father is to come before the Father in a posture of humility. It's an attitude of knowing always who we are, but knowing that we're always accepted and always loved, always embraced by a good, good Father. Do your prayers... Hallow the name of the Father. Is there that humble submission? Is there that humble posture? And you see, if you're going to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, then the way to hallow the name of the Father is to pray, your kingdom come. To pray is not to confess what we want, our agendas, our desires, our plans, our will, our kingdom. It's your, your kingdom come, Father. It's your will be done, not our will. As Jesus cried out so often in the Garden of Gethsemane with cries and tears and was heard, heard because of his reverent submission. To pray your kingdom come means that you desire more than anything else to live the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. You want the Father to do whatever He's got to do in order to advance the kingdom through the gospel in this world. You want to live the gospel. You want to proclaim the gospel. You want to see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not an anti-climate changer. Mm, it makes sense. I'm not anti-climate change. But you know I've been following the, uh, the, COP, the COP26, right? That's the recent climate change thing in, uh, in Glasgow. And, you know, keep my eye on it. And, and uh, There's normally a couple of good quotes that come out of, out of these places. And the first one came from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And here's what he said. 
said, quote, Humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this, Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. It's time to say enough. But the bottom line with climate change is that it's got nothing to do with God's kingdom, does it? It's about making the world go on for as long as it can possibly go on. It's about setting up some sort of an environmental future for our children's children's children. COP26 prays, our kingdom come. Our kingdom come. Father, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Not our will, but yours be done. Father, turn people from living in darkness into the light. Turn them from living from self to living from Jesus. Turn them from the darkness to the life. Rescue from being lost to being found. Father, your kingdom come. Would you bring an advance of the gospel that would bring the salvation of men, women, and children and build your church through your son. And when you're praying your kingdom come, you're saying, Father, use me. Use me. Let me live my life for your gospel, for your son. Would you use me? Would you open up my mouth? Would you help me to proclaim your word, your gospel? Father, I know that you're the one that makes it all grow, but I want to water. I want to plant. I want to be part of what you're doing. If you ask yourself as a Christian, what on earth are you here for? You are here to be part of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. You're to be part of living that kingdom and part of proclaiming that kingdom to see people come from the darkness into the light and to see Christians grow more and more as learners in the kingdom. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray? Your kingdom come. And the last aspect of this prayer, and I won't do the whole prayer, but look at number six there is, give us our daily bread. But read it like this. Your kingdom come, give us our daily bread. Now, if you, if you read Give us our daily bread without the context of your kingdom come. You might think that that prayer, give us our daily bread, is simply a prayer. Father, won't you please help me to put bread on the table to feed my family that I can live as long as I can until I die and then go to be with Jesus. But that's not the prayer. The prayer is, Lord, provide. Lord, would you give me resources Lord, would you, Father, would you, would you give me the sustenance to be part of and active in the kingdom of Jesus that you're bringing 
through living and proclaiming the gospel. I don't know about you, but I can sometimes get into a bit of a mindset of saying, Lord, you can take me now. Anybody got an amen on that one? I see one hand at least. I am sick of this world. I am sick of my sin. I am sick of sickness. I am sick of trouble and hardship. I am sick of frustration. I'm really tired of all my problems. I'm really frustrated with the problems of the sheep, um, the, 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 the problems that the sheep of, of, of God have or that I carry on my heart. And I sometimes get a little bit like Star Trek. Lord, you can beam me up now. Remember that line? Beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Father. It's not a very gospel perspective. Let me show you the gospel perspective on beam me up. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, he says, listen to this. These are glorious words. For me to live, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we sort of stop there, right? We're ready to go. <laughs> hey, it's gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I do not know. Are you kidding, Paul? I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Therefore, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. <laughs> oh. All right, so Paul's in jail, right? He's in some Philippian jail yet again for proclaiming the gospel. And, and Paul knows that if his suffering in jail was to end in death, where does he go? Right? He would go to be with the Lord, the presence of the Lord. I mean, that would be better by far. But what does he say? I want to go there because it would be better by far, but it's better that I do what? That I? And do what? It's not stay and see my grandkids grow up. It's not stay and see if I can get the extra house. It's not stay and see if I can survive COVID and go overseas. He wants to stay and see what? He wants to see the kingdom come. Here's the prayer. In jail, give me today my daily bread. In other words, sustain me, keep me alive so that I can continue to live the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and in this context, see the Philippians come to greater and greater faith and maturity in Christ. Is that why you want to stay on earth? I'm going to end there. Do you know what the weapons are now? Prayer and gospel. Did you get it? Prayer and gospel. Or 
prayerful gospel. It's one, but it's two. But only one thing is needed. But Well, it's actually two. Prayer and gospel. Do you know how powerful prayer is? Do you know how powerful the gospel is? These are our weapons. These are the things that demolish demonic strongholds. These are the things that God uses to save his people and grow them in Christ. They're not weapons of the world. How about you pray that with me out loud now as we close. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask um, Kyle and Alana and Fiona to join me up front. I'm, I'm going to, we're going to sing, and then I'm going to ask you to sit again, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something. Which if you want to, you can. If you don't want to, that's okay. And then we'll finish there. So would you stand as we sing about the Father's love for